following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. This is the 15th lecture in a series on the Sufi principles of meditation. Everything we've explained so far is the requisite. It sets the stage, the parameters, the foundation of our particular focus today, which is the science of certainty. Any person who approaches meditation, spirituality, religion, longs to have understanding of the truths contained within a tradition to have profound insight, wisdom, and direct knowledge of how to live with efficacy, with understanding, with ethics. Students who have studied this tradition from the writings of Samael and Vior often struggle with this principle the most. Understanding or comprehension is an extremely elusive thing. And yet it is the nourishment, the food, the daily sustenance of the Gnostic. There are many different means of meditating different objects, different focuses. Whether on a particular defect, a psychological aggregate, an ego, which specifically is the most important meditation we can do. Because by understanding our own errors, we can change them. 
we can transform our daily life into a beautiful work of art, the perfected human being. We can also gain understanding or certainty, comprehension of a scripture, especially if we take the time to relax our senses, to reflect on a particular verse within a scripture, especially when its meaning eludes us. When we are confused, when we are uncertain. Now, when we approach this concept, or better said, this principle, we have to remember that while we have a lot of knowledge, perhaps, in our intellect, does it really mean that we have consciousness, experience of what we've read? This is very important. This is a profound distinction because many people fail to understand this difference. Because if you don't experience what you read, if you don't verify it with facts, then we neglect a very important part of who we are a fundamental principle of our own consciousness, which is to understand. Different schools and philosophies, especially movements, educational pedagogies, often speak about metacognition. In layman's terms, it means to think about the process of thinking what it entails, what are the structures. Yet, in the Gnostic movement, we take this principle much further than mere intellectual analysis. Real metacognition, if you look at the prefix meta, it has to do with understanding itself how and why we think, and more importantly, how are we present in this moment? We have to really intuit without having to label with our mind the very processes of cognizance how we apprehend phenomena, and more importantly, how do we interpret it? Whether those experiences are very mundane, like washing the dishes, or something really subtle and profound, like having an astral projection, a dream, a vision. The intellect fails to understand what we perceive and yet it is a tool we can use it it's useful within its orbit it can store information associations memories symbols information data but it is not the primary functionalism of understanding 
And this is evidenced by an alcoholic who knows their addiction is wrong and is harmful. And yet they continue to engage in behaviors that create problems. Knowledge is of the mind, comprehension is of the heart. Someone who really understands why alcohol is dangerous and destructive won't touch it, no matter how many temptations. And so understanding is a great mystery. How do we know what we know when we know it? How do we interpret our experiences? What we perceive? What is certainty? To really know something. Is it intellectual? Or is it perhaps something much more moving? Expansive? Infinite? We've been going back again and again to the study of consciousness. We state it is the root of our perception. It is what grants us the capacity to be. However, as we've explained in our studies of Kabbalah, the tree of life, the structure and dynamics of the soul, of the different structures and constituents of our makeup, we've been exploring how we perceive through filters through conditions of mind, which have to do with primarily in the beginning when we meditate, our body, our senses. We may have an itch, a scratch, a pain in our back. We have to become aware of our physicality. We have to relax the body. We do so primarily by working with energy vital force, whether pranayama, mantras, or sexual transmutation. We have to put our energies in a state of suspension. We have to comprehend these forces and how they direct the body. More importantly, we have to direct everything that we are in its lower strata. The consciousness is the essence, the soul, who has to be driving the car, which is our body, our energies, especially our emotions. We have to relax our heart and suspend all negativity, even if but for a few moments. We have to relax the mind to not think so much, to not let the mind ramble and go on and on in a chain of associative thinking which really is endless unless we observe it, when we don't identify with it. We observe and let it rest. Likewise, we have to work with our willpower, our concentration. We have to focus on the act of observing, of perceiving, which is the consciousness itself. It's when you really focus your concentration within and look with a receptive mind, heart, and body and energies. Your consciousness activates 
Everything else beneath the consciousness suspends. But our consciousness must become awake, activated through the psychological and spiritual pressure of our inner being who guides us through intuition, through hunches, to the heart. There are different degrees of who we are. But the question is, do we discriminate what we perceive? Are we looking at our mind, our heart, and our body, our energies, with clarity, with purity, with depth? Or does the mind carry us away and what happened yesterday and that leads on to another thought and then our body itches, we scratch it, we have a pain, we adjust ourselves and our heart is in turmoil in emotional suffering over a drama that happened the previous day. Are we perceiving all this? And are we not identifying with it? Because the word identification has to do with where you place your attention. Where is your consciousness going? Where are you? Are you stuck in the body and its pain? We can learn to fix that in the beginning by finding a posture that works, that helps us to relax. Are we identified with the sensations and energies of our vital body? Meaning our self is there. We feel that we are the energies present. Or do we think and feel that we are the mind, our thoughts, and our heart? Whatever sentiments pass within the screen of our being. Identification has to do with our psychological state, the quality thereof. Consciousness is like water. In its inherent and pristine form, it is very pure, fluidic, dynamic. But when it enters into a dirty cup, it takes on the characteristics of that cup. Whether it's sediments and dirt, it stains, which have to do with all of our psychological baggage we carry within our pride, our vanity, our hatred, our lust, ego, or as the Sufis state, nafs al-amara, the soul that inclines to evil, negativity, pain. So the consciousness needs to be purified. We have to learn to really direct it, to clarify it, to exercise it. All the practices we've mentioned so far help set the stage. We need a body and posture that's relaxed so that we can forget about it. We need to stimulate the creative sexual energy and to direct it to empower our consciousness and then not to fascinate over it, to linger on it, but let those energies help to suspend thought and negative emotion, feeling so that we can really concentrate within with vivid intensity, with clarity, with inner strength, which is not a type of exertion or mental strain. It is merely the application of will. 
to focus on one thing and not be distracted. And then when the consciousness learns to look at one thing at the exclusion of all else, we can extract wisdom from that phenomena. But of course, the consciousness must be developed. It has to work. It has to know. It has to understand what it perceives. Because we tend to see phenomena physically or within meditation, and we mistake its true essence for what it is, its reality. A classic example of how we misperceive life, or better said, how we misinterpret what we perceive is the Hindu example of mistaking a rope for a snake. You see a rope on the floor, but you are in the dark. You don't see clearly. Your mind and emotion and your fear kick in. Instinct, you want to run. You feel terror. And then the thoughts emerge. I have to get out of here. You panic. But we're not seeing the object for what it is. This has to do not only with awareness of our environment, but more importantly, with our psychological conditions of mind. So the consciousness has to perceive. It's important. But we have to understand what we are seeing. And this is why you need to turn the light on. Light is consciousness. It is perception. The consciousness is what can know, which can understand anything when it's developed. And the consciousness learns to discriminate what it sees. It has objectivity in degrees. The more we work with it and expand it and develop it. Now, in Western philosophical studies, they refer to the study of knowledge as epistemology, which is the investigation of how we know what we know and whether or not it's possible. The problem with the movement, however, is that it leans towards a materialistic dogma. People become very confused and uncertain because Rather than verifying truth, perception, they often get caught in the logic of dialectics of a materialistic type. They remain in the domain of the physical senses within theories. We bring this up because understanding our perceptions, the objectivity of what we perceive, we have to learn to discriminate, to judge, to really objectively analyze, to understand, to arrive at a deeper comprehension of reality. This does not mean we become skeptic or morbid, repressive, judgmental, fanatic. Analysis is not intellectual. It's a type of intuition of understanding and knowing without having to think about it. You perceive it, and then you understand. And so a lot of people approach meditation. They approach metaphysics 
with the aspiration to understand divine reality, the highest truths of religion. However, people don't realize that their desires for experiences, for these types of insights, or their own morbidity, their pessimism, their doubt, do not allow them to understand their traditions, meditation, religion, yoga, Gnosticism or Sufism, especially. Our conditions of mind prevent us from really interpreting with objectivity. It is our desires, our lower soul, the ego, or egos, better said, nafsal amara, which obstruct the very realizations that we seek. This is why Bayezid al-Bastami stated, the thing we tell of can never be found by seeking, yet only seekers find it. The Sufis speak in paradoxical parables and, and oftentimes in statements that are apparently contradictory, but they're really fluid and dynamic. They play with words to fool the intellectuals, but speak in an intuitive grammar, the building blocks of the soul, which baffles the mind, but is understandable with the heart. So what does his statement mean in relation to ourselves your desires and egos which are frustratingly seeking heaven which want astral samadhis jinn states clairvoyant and telepathic powers and abilities that samal and writes about abundantly in his writings those cravings and attachments are the very thing that lock the door to reality. They are the lens through which we see and then we don't understand why we suffer and why we don't get what we want. This is why we spent so much time discussing serenity, calmness of mind, contentment, renunciation of expectations, because this is the prerequisite to insight without the ability to place serene, unwavering, intensely clear concentration upon one object, if you can't focus on that one thing without wandering off in the mind, we can't understand at all. You can't have insight. You can't be certain about what is going on psychologically because the mind is like a big salad that's mixed up with a lot of different flavors. And while we can be attracted to the salt and taste and dressing and the different vegetables we included in it, we're not really seeing each ingredient for what it is. If you really wanna see and understand the stratifications of the mind, you have to let everything settle so that you can see the layers like oil and water separating. You have to be still. 
And you can only do that when you're focused. If you forget the object of your concentration, relax. Gently bring your attention back to whatever you're focusing on and let the mind settle and be. When everything is really profoundly still, acquiescent, clear, clean, the mud settles at the bottom of the jar and the water above becomes more pure so that you can understand what's going on. This is a parable of our psychological state. Now in Arabic, the term insight is ferasah, which relates to farisa, a lion who hunts prey. Insight is the same. It's like a lion that hunts for food. What is the food that we seek when we develop insight? When we're looking at a problem, a defect, a scripture, we're looking for the food of the soul, comprehension, understanding. Salman Vyar refers to this as creative comprehension. Because when you really understand something with your soul, you feel light. You feel a spark in your being. It is nourishing. It gives you spiritual life. Meditation is the daily bread of the Gnostics, says Samal and Vayor. That bread is understanding. Without it, we don't have any longevity in our practice. This is why people leave meditation. They don't understand what is going on. They may have set the table for a remarkable meal. And yet, they don't appreciate what's there because they're too attached to their own desires, their own cravings, their own mind. So in order to talk about insights or perception, discrimination, understanding, certainty, we talk about the foundations especially. Previously, we talked about Sharia within Sufism. It is the ethical commandments, stipulations, and laws of spiritual divine conduct, how to behave physically and mentally and emotionally. This is in order to gain concentration and willpower. Because if you can't direct your attention, you cannot achieve anything. This is why Bayezid al-Bastami stated that only seekers find the truth. But you don't find it by seeking egotistically, with desires, with ego. It's by letting that rest through prayer and serenity in worship, concentration and focus. And in that way, you allow for the intuition to come to you spontaneously without expectation. That is hakikah, the truth, wisdom, which arrives without any effort. It magically appears. It flashes within you. It courses within you through astral experiences when you're meditating, where you're focusing within and suddenly as your body is asleep, you suddenly start to perceive in your imagination, your visualization, 
different scenes, experiences, conversations, events in which you are both a spectator and a participant. You start to roam within a world that opens up within your consciousness that is inaccessible to the physical senses. These are flashes of intuition, of experiential wisdom. This is the beginning. And it's important. The way that you combine your ethical conduct, sharia, with inner experience, hakika, because hakika means truth with an Arabic, the path of truth. You have to practice the middle pillar or the middle path, known in the Sufi tradition as tariqa, which is meditation. I'll read for you an excerpt we've gone back to a few times before in order to emphasize these points. This is from Al-Risalah, Principles of Sufism. The divine law is doing what you've been ordered to do. Hakika is bearing witness to what he has determined and ordained, hidden and revealed. I heard Abu Ali al-Dakak say that God's saying in the opening surah of the Quran, Al-Fatiha, Yaka Nabudu, you we worship, preserves the outward practice, the divine law, Sharia. Yaka Nastain, to you we turn for help establishes the inner reality, the way, hakika. So you we worship, and to you we turn for help. Perhaps one of the most beautiful statements in the entire Quran, which is why it's included in Al-Fatiha, the most recited verses of that scripture. It's because when you worship divinity, you're concentrating. You have to exert some effort in your consciousness, your human will in order to focus on what you're doing and when you turn for help it's when you allow everything to rest with an open and receptive consciousness so that you can see inwardly receive insight this takes no effort and so when people follow their desires their egotism nafs they close the door to comprehension so this is the primary obstacle, is our own mind. If you want spiritual experiences, you have to understand what is craving those things and why. I'd like to read a few verses from the Quran, which emphasize the importance of certainty, the importance of understanding, which appear in the form of signs that are mentioned again and again in the Quran. These are known as ayat. Each verse of the Quran is known as a sign, as ayat, because they are revelations from direct experience. Let me recite some of these verses for you. I shall turn away from my signs those who wax arrogant upon the earth without right. What are these signs of God? People literally interpret them like the moon, the sun, the stars, the plants the mountains, the trees, within the limits of astronomical and meteorological influences, literal phenomena physically. In truth, as we explained previously, especially in the lecture on striving, these are meditation symbols. They represent mystical and psychological spiritual states. Those who wax arrogant without right are those who lack ethics. They don't obey 
the laws of compassion, of reciprocity, of humanity, of understanding, of patience. The Quran continues, even if they were to see every sign, they would not believe in them. So the Quran often speaks about the unbelievers who we mentioned are our own egos, defects. So these signs are symbols within meditation, which we witness when we practice contemplation, mushahida. Despite the fact that some people might have experiences or visions, they often reject them because they're fascinated merely with physical things, external things, not internal reality. There are different schools of meditation which teach you to not focus on your visualizations at all. They reject any type of experiences or non-physical imagery. And this is wrong. This is a mistake. These people reject the inner symbolic language of divinity, the actual communication with the divine. And therefore, they fanatically reject any experiential dimension of religion. Religare in Latin, meaning reunion. So these mystical states are anathemic or anathematic or offensive to them. No amount of experience will convince them. The Quran continues. And if they were to see the way of sound judgment, they would not take it as a way, meaning out of suffering. But if they were to see the way of error, they would take it as a way. So what is conscious judgment? We explained in previous lectures, especially in the lecture called Conscious Judgment in the Gnostic Psychology course on our website. It is conscience. It is intuition, inner discrimination, knowing and understanding what we perceive with objectivity. So many people hear these principles and reject them because they want to feed their desires. As the Quran states, that is because they denied our signs or were heedless of them. People deny Gnosis because they don't study and they don't practice. And even if they practice, they do it with selfish motives. And therefore, they have no experiences. Heedlessness is negligence. For as Samal Vera stated in The Revolution of the Dialectic, he explained how negligence refers to not elect to not act consciously, to not do anything. To not use your willpower, your concentration within practice. The Quran states, as for those who deny our signs and the meaning of the hereafter, their deeds have come to naught. So our deeds come to naught if we don't really practice effectively. As Samuel Anveor stated in the Great Rebellion, those who do not know how to meditate, the superficial, the ignorant, will never be able to dissolve the ego. They will always be impotent driftwood in the tumultuous sea of life. And the final verse from this excerpt from the Quran, from Surah Al-Araf. Are they recompensed for aught save that which they used to do? So we receive the consequences of our actions. We always follow the trajectory of our deeds. If we don't understand the secret causes of our own affliction, we can't understand how to change. So change occurs when we comprehend the internal causes of our behavior. 
Creative comprehension, therefore, has nothing to do with guessing, with supposing we are a certain way but are not, with theories, with beliefs, with lies that we tell ourselves. It is profound honesty, non-negotiable, profound direct criticism of our most hidden faults, taking accountability for who we are, what we've done, and where we are going. It is direct intuitive understanding without any type of rationality, without having to think about it. You just look at who you are, examine yourself. This is why Samal and Vera stated the following in Igneous Rose about the faculties that are the foundation for certainty and insight. He states, discernment is direct perception of the truth without the process of reasoning. Discernment is comprehension without the necessity of reasoning. We must change the process of reasoning for the beauty of comprehension. We must only extract the golden fruit from reasoning. The golden fruit of reasoning is comprehension. Comprehension and imagination must replace reasoning. Imagination and comprehension are the foundation of the superior faculties of the mind. As we've explained previously, imagination is not something necessarily conditioned, negative, or subjective, like a fantasy, a delusion of the mind. It is something that is perceived within the consciousness. It can be objective or it can be subjective. Depends on our own psychological state. So we have to learn to develop this faculty to see, to imagine, to have insight, to perceive something so that we can understand it without having to rationalize, having to deliberate or guess at what we see. We have to visualize and imagine so that we can understand because you cannot comprehend what you don't perceive. This is why imagination exercises are very powerful. They establish the groundwork by which we can have greater color and vibrancy, perception within our consciousness. But then we have to learn to discriminate what's going on. This is why Abu Hussein ibn Mansur al-Halaj stated the following. The man of spiritual insight hits his target with the first shot. He does not turn to interpretation or opinion or calculation. So if you're guessing or calculating or hypothesizing what's going on, it means that we don't comprehend. Certainty is contemplation. Mushahida, witnessing, from Abu Hassan al-Nuri, whose Arabic name means the beauty of the light. Certainty, comprehension, contemplation, these are all synonyms for understanding. Direct mystical experiences constitute authentic knowledge. So we can read many books, but if we don't experience what they write or talk about, we don't really understand them with great depth. Those who do not awaken consciousness in the internal worlds don't know divinity, reality. We can believe in these teachings, in these truths, but have we actually talked with God? Do we even accept that there is a possibility that one can? Very distinct difference between someone who believes and someone who has really experienced. Contemplation is not a belief. 
beliefs are projections of the mind, a sentiment in the heart, a precondition or supposition of what reality is. It's a religious zeal without evidence. Contemplation is pure receptivity. It is the acquisition of divine truth. So as I stated before, the mind has to be completely receptive. It has to be passive. It has to be tranquil, calm, like a limpid and pure lake. When the intellect is still, the consciousness becomes activated. It can reflect internal imagery, like the surface of a pond or lake. The heavens become manifested in images. This is an allegory or parable, a correspondence to the spiritual path, contemplation. Meditation activates the consciousness, not the mind. So there's a story within the Quran which beautifully teaches some of these principles. It's the story of Moses coming up to Mount Sinai to talk with divinity. And it's a symbol of how our own conscious willpower in meditation learns to receive divine aid. And when Moses came to our appointed meeting and his Lord spoken to him, he said, my Lord, show me that I might look upon thee. So we all yearn to have this knowledge and experience, to look upon divinity, to know divinity. So an appointment is something that's planned. It can be scheduled. It's a meeting. It's an event. And in this verse, it's a promise of divine union or spiritual experience. Which we can only have certainty of through practice, experimentation, and verification. So what is our most important appointment to keep and make? In this tradition, we state it's meditation, daily meditation. So the highest wisdom is directly perceived within the higher worlds. And divinity, as we've mentioned before, is formless, infinite, like space. However, divinity can take on forms to teach us something profound. However, to really perceive divinity in the highest realities, we have to really be humble, as you're going to see in this verse. Do not have an iota of pride present. The Quran states, He said, Thou shalt not see me, but look upon the mountain. If it remains firm in its place, then thou wilt see me. What is a mountain in esoteric symbology? What is immovable and unconquerable? What is elevated and beautifully serene at the same time? It is perfect concentration. It is willpower. A mountain in initiatic symbolism is the spinal column, which is the symbol of will, wherein the kundalini or al-burak the lightning that carried Prophet Muhammad to the seven heavens rises. It happens within our stone, our Kaaba, Yesod. And through meditation, we activate, and through alchemy, we raise that energy. The Quran continues. And when his Lord manifested himself to the mountain, he made it crumble to dust. And Moses fell down in a swoon. And when he recovered, he said, Glory be to thee. I turn unto thee in repentance, and I am the first of the believers. From Surah 7, verse 143, Al-Araf. 
which means the height, I believe, in Arabic. So I remember an experience I had meditating physically with a group of Gnostics. We were praying on our knees in our meditation chamber. And I remember struggling with a defect of pride that was really bothering me. It was against another student who I knew at the time. And I didn't like having this mystical pride in my heart, which I could see in myself was creating problems. Vanity and feeling better than this other person. So we were praying very deeply and I was on my knees. And I was struggling with this aggregate, looking at it and praying to my inner God to show me understanding, to give me certainty of what this thing is and was that was creating suffering for myself. So I entered a very profound state of serenity and I was observing in that clear, direct observation when suddenly as my body was at rest, I forgot about my physicality. My energies were transmuted through our exercises we performed that evening. When insight, like a lightning bolt, shot through me, I suddenly understood in one moment what that defect was, how it worked, where it came from, why it subsisted, why it was feeding, how it was eluding me. And it was like this verse from the Quran, the mountain shattered. My divine mother, the lightning force of Al-Bur'aq, the divine mother Sulu Sigi Sig in Nordic language, the rune Sig, the lightning Vajra energy of divine feminine creativity and destruction, took this ego and killed it. And I was, I remember kneeling and feeling great love and humility, not only for my divine mother, but for this person who I had a qualm with through this ego. I understood the ego and it shattered and it was cosmic dust. It was gone. The mountain shattered. That aggregate was annihilated. And therefore, I turned to repentance with happiness because that is how we really, you can say in a manner of speaking, believe. We have knowledge. We have conviction in what we perceive. So I was swooning psychologically from the energy that was Manifest in me it was my divine mother. And I felt great happiness and relief afterward. So that's a form of certainty and witnessing in a very simple and practical sense. Very profound. But let's talk about the three forms of certainty. Because there are levels of knowledge, levels of conviction and understanding that are very well explained within Sufi doctrine. The following quote is from Abdullah Ansari of Harat's Stations of the Sufi Path. Certainty is assurance free from delusion. So as Samal Anvir wrote in The Revolution of the Dialectic, a mind which is divided by the depressing process of options cannot serve as an instrument for the innermost. Therefore, to be caught within dualistic thinking, binaries, ideas, ideologies, possible outcomes means that we're hypnotized, we're deluded, we're confused. 
were going back and forth like a pendulum swinging from the hands of a hypnotist. This type of rationalization and the battle of antithetical concepts really is depressing because we don't really comprehend or know with facts what's going on. Let's continue with this quote. Certainties of three kinds. Knowledge of certainty, ilm al-yakin. The eye of certainty, ayn al-yakin. And the reality of certainty, haq al-yakin. So these are levels of certainty that we're going to unpack today. They're all very important because there are different meditators with different capacities of understanding and experience. So if you've really studied the writings of Salman Vior, he is very broad in his range of teaching different levels of initiates, whether from the very beginning to the heights. But we can also say he's very synthetic. He takes a lot of difficult concepts and explains them in a very unique and refined way. And so all of that knowledge is useful. It's practical. But we have to be at that level of development to understand the path itself. The quote continues. Knowledge of certainty is the knowledge based on reasoning. The eye of certainty is knowledge based on perception. And the reality of certainty is real and true. So our intellect is useful when it's controlled by our consciousness. Knowledge without being is useless. It's egotistical. Because we can have a lot of information in our mind and we can use it to create the atom bomb. Not humane. It's very destructive. So knowledge without ethics is dangerous, we can say. However, knowledge utilized by the spirit is beneficial. So knowledge of certainty is necessary in the beginning. We have to study the teachings in the mind. We have to have concepts and structures and information because that is primarily how we learn especially in the west with intellectual knowledge being a primary modes and means of disseminating information or knowledge the problem is that we tend to take that knowledge and not understand what we read this is this is why we have to really meditate on this knowledge to gain insight so that we can see how it relates to our practical life. This is the path of Sharia, the law, the outward discipline. The eye of certainty has to do with conscious experiences when we really verify what we read. We can read about astral projection. We can become fascinated with the theory. But until we've done it ourselves, it is merely a concept. However, when you have the experience, it really gives you faith because you see that your experience is not only isolated to you but to millions of people who have experienced these truths. This is tariqa, the inner path, meditation. Reality of certainty is when we have the highest mystical experiences, divine states. This is known as hakika, truth, and marifa, knowledge. Let's continue with this quote. Knowledge of certainty is achieved through studying the eye of certainty is achieved through visionary disclosure of reality, and the reality of certainty is achieved through witnessing the reality. So, in the beginning, study the path. Study the books of Samal and Vior. Study the scriptures. So that when you have experiences, you won't be confused. You won't be lost. Many people 
may have internal experiences which are mapped out by the Kabbalah, the tree of life. But if they don't know Kabbalah, they're not going to be very skilled in navigating those internal worlds because Kabbalah is the language of that dimension, of those inner dimensions themselves. So visionary disclosure is imagination. It's when you perceive things in meditation. You have symbols that arrive to you that disclose themselves from the obscurity of the subconsciousness, which enter your psyche without you willing it. These are meditative experiences. And reality of certainty is primarily the knowledge of the absolute. So the tree of life emanates from that zero base, the zero dimension, the abstract absolute space, the limitless, the limitless light and the nothing, which in Kabbalah are known as Ain, Ain Sof, Ain Sof Or. In Islam, it is Allah. Because in Arabic, all is the, the indefinite article, and la is negation, means no. It is the nothing, the space. It rejects any type of anthropomorphism, which is why in Islam, they don't allow symbols or representations of divinity because that cosmic space cannot be characterized by anything within this universe. It has to be experienced. It is the illuminating void. So, Obviously, this is a very broad range of knowledge. Studying with the intellect or having an astral experience and even having a samadhi within the heights of the tree of life. The truth is that we have to begin with where we're at. Some people really need basic knowledge. And that's primarily every one of us. We shouldn't really assume that we're advanced spiritual initiates, but to really take on humility and recognize that we don't know and that we're easily fooled. Humility opens the doorway to real experiences. So we need introductory knowledge, but also other people require deeper insight because some people will have astral experiences and even samadhis. Therefore, they need certainty born from visionary disclosure or the highest reality. Therefore, as instructors, we try to provide certainty from a various level or levels of experience. All of these teachings are necessary. Some people like to leave out Kabbalah. They think it's too complicated. It's too difficult. But at one point, you found it difficult to learn your ABCs. With practice, you learn it. And then you can start to form words and sentences. The same thing with Kabbalah, the sacred arcana, the tarot, which are the esoteric divine grammar of conscious language. With it, you learn to apprehend the intuitive knowledge of the higher realities. But you have to practice with where you're at. Begin. Don't vacillate, but really continue with it. It's difficult, but nothing that's worthwhile is easy. So as instructors, we have many courses. We give different perspectives on these types of things. Now, all of it's necessary because people who have experiences and have dreams about numbers and the tarot need to study that knowledge so that they can become competent in the internal worlds. It's necessary. If a student merely leaves this knowledge in the intellect, we can't really say it's the teacher's fault because as Samal Vera stated, to teach without explaining is the equivalent of not teaching. So it's practical, all of it. Use it well, but 
Read a little, but meditate a lot so that you can understand more. Apply what you learn. This is the foundation. The quote continues. Knowledge of certainty is the result of audition. The eye of certainty is attained as the result of inspiration. And the reality of certainty is the result of truly seeing what is evident, ayan. So first we have to hear the doctrine. In Buddhism, this is the path of Shravakayana. As Shravakas, as listeners, we come to lectures and learn the doctrine and teachings. And then we begin to apply that knowledge. That's the beginning. Then with practice, we perceive with the consciousness, divine symbols in meditation or out of the body. And these inspire us. This is the esoteric significance of the Mahayana path, where we become inspired to act compassionately for humanity because of what we perceive with comprehension of the inherent selflessness of divinity, the interdependence of all phenomena, and the profound joy of the absolute. Now, reality is understood when we witness, through concrete evidence, experiences, truths beyond the body, the affections, and the mind. In Buddhism, this is the path of tantrayana, the path of the continuum, tantra, of consciousness, which is never broken but sustained intentionally. Let us continue reading this quote. Knowledge of certainty consists in the recognition of causes and causation. The eye of certainty consists in gaining liberation from causes and causation. And the reality of certainty is emancipation from all false expectation and discrimination. In the beginning, we have a basic knowledge of karma. We learn ethics, cause and effect. If I speak with anger, I will produce pain. Very basic, simple, but simplicity is more profound than complicity or complication, multiplicity of desires. We have to learn to follow the divine law, to integrate our consciousness, to not be fractured in so many different defects, but to follow the superior law of action and consequences so that by overcoming karma, we perceive its causes. We liberate ourselves by learning to perceive with clarity. Lastly, reality is emancipation from any type of desire, anticipation, or interpretation of the intellect to suppose or theorize, to believe. It is the pure receptivity of mind and the activity of consciousness without an iota of self. So there exist degrees of insight which are more or less mingled with desire until we are really fully purified of ego. Insight arrives when we abandon negligence or heedlessness by really practicing each day because you're not going to have real depth or consistency unless you really dedicate a lot of your time, renounce superfluous activities so that we have a space and a psychological environment that is conducive for spiritual growth. Insight really guides us. It is the food that alleviates the, the suffering of one who starves. And insight really guides us in all of our daily activities and interrelations in life. It has to do with knowing how to act with vibrancy and profound attention, with intuition, with wisdom that cuts through suffering. Abu Sayyid al-Qaraz said, 
One who sees with the light of spiritual insight sees with the light of truth. The very substance of his knowledge comes from God, unmixed with either negligence or forgetfulness. Indeed, it is a judgment of truth flowing from the tongue of the servant. Abu Sayyid's expression, looking with the light of the truth, means seeing by a light with which the truth has favored him. Self-remembrance is a light. It is what orients us, which is why we dedicated an entire lecture to this principle. Striving against desire, as Prophet Muhammad stated, is the monasticism of the Muslim. It has to do with integrating our consciousness and recollecting the presence of divinity in our heart, being inspired by the presence of compassion and conscious understanding of our relationship with others, to exchange our own self with those who suffer. This is how we can really judge phenomena correctly with intuition. Al-Wasati said, spiritual insight means the rays of light that gleam in hearts and the solid establishment of a spiritual knowledge that conveys secrets of the invisible realm from one hidden place to another. This is a direct reference to the tree of life and all its different sephiroth or dimensions. Thus, the possessor of insight witnesses things in the way that the truth brings him to witness them. And he speaks what is in people's minds. So our hearts gleam with compassion and wisdom when we possess certainty. Really the most beautiful quality of a true human being, a master, is their intelligence and their wisdom. Because it is synthesized in the force of divine love. To really love another person well and objectively, we need intelligence and wisdom, clarity in our perception. So these also have to do with experiences, flashes of inspiration, imaginative perceptions, which grant us intuitive wisdom, knowledge. I'll relate to you a quote from uh, Salman Vior in the book Igneous Rose, which relate to this interrelation with people. In the presence of any person, Many images that correspond to the internal life of that person with whom we are in contact will emerge from our interior. This is known as clairvoyance, or we can say imagination, to perceive, to have the basis for spiritual insight. Later, these images produce distinct feelings of inspiration within ourselves. The disciple has then reached the stage of inspired knowledge. Finally, in the presence of any person, the disciple instantaneously knows the life of that person. This is the stage of intuitive knowledge. In synthesis, imagination is perception of non-physical imagery. It's a psychological sense. You can begin to read people well or better when we work on our own mental obstructions, our own pride and anger and defects. When you eliminate ego, you start to see with greater understanding and depth. So that when you're encountering people, you start to sense their thoughts and their mind their emotions. All of us have had some type of experience with this because as an example, we might've been in a room with a person 
who didn't say a word, and yet we can sense their anger boiling, seething with rage, even though they don't say anything. We can sense it. It's a psychological sense. It's a form of imagination. But this is something that could be developed even further. This is known as the science of telepathy or transience, the understanding of thought and mind, our interrelations with others. Inspiration is the recognition of symbols and internal states to really be inspired with joy what we see in a new way and that we're learning to navigate a world that is infinite and profound. Intuition is insight. It's when we have real certainty. We understand what we perceive. We have a whole lecture. The next lecture in this course, especially focus on these three elements, imagination, inspiration, and intuition. I'm only introducing it now, but it's very profound, very deep. So beginner study and then seek to verify what they read. Masters experience and then seek physical evidence to verify their experiences. I'll relate some quotes that are very deep that explain the difference between the inside of a beginner and the inside of a master. It is said that the spiritual insight of students is a thought that demands verification, but the insight of the Gnostics is a verification that demands a reality. I'll give you an example of this. Oftentimes in the beginning, we have an intuition or a hunch that something is true, but we don't know. And therefore we have to test, experiment, and verify our hypothesis. We have to verify through experiences, through practices, and come to a conclusion based on whether or not from our experiences, the phenomena is true. Now, agnostic, one who can develop more insight and knowledge, oftentimes has experiences that internally they have to verify physically. So you can have an astral experience in which you perceive something really beautiful and profound and divine, but you may not understand the real depth of it until physically you find the evidence later on. I'll give you an example of this. I remember I had an experience about my inner divinity in which I perceived the tree of life with its 10 spheres or sephiroth, it, this diagram that we go back to again and again. However, at the time I was just a beginner and I didn't understand what this symbol was. So I had to look physically in the books and eventually get in contact with an instructor who pointed this out to me. So I had the experience before I physically knew about it. This gave me a lot of faith, obviously. I remember even one time I was very dedicated to practicing a Japanese martial art known as Aikido. And I had an encounter with a black magician who was attacking me in the astral plane. I remember this adept at the Black Lodge grabbed me and did a technique that was from Aikido. I asked him what, what was this because he disabled my arm as I was in a conflict or combating him. But I didn't know exactly what that technique was. He just said, this is Aikido. And I won't relate, relate the rest of that experience. But I remember when I physically returned to my body, the next day I asked my physical sensei, my teacher, and showed him the technique that was used against me. I said, I 
I've heard of this move and I want to know more about it. What is it? And the person said, this is uh, Nikio. It's a type of way that you can grab a person's hand and by twisting them in a certain manner, you can disable them from attacking you. So I was really amazed by that too, because here I learned an Aikido technique in the internal worlds before I learned about it physically. But obviously for a lot of people, we study first and then we verify. But sometimes we can have inner experiences that we have to verify with physical facts. This is really important. It's important that we verify what we perceive with physical evidence so that we can have certainty about what we've seen and experienced. This is why the writings of Samal and Vior are very valuable and why he was so explicit about his own personal knowledge in teaching others because he was giving a roadmap for those who were having inner wisdom and knowledge for themselves so that they weren't confused or wouldn't be confused. Let me continue reading from this quote. Ahmad ibn Asim al-Antaki said, when you sit with the people of truthfulness, sit with them in truthfulness, for they are the spies of the heart. They will enter and leave your heart without your feeling it. So I remember even on many Gnostic retreats, I've personally witnessed this, how being around certain instructors or missionaries that you know, have been practicing for a very long time could read my mind. And they always speak very intuitively towards me, very humbly and with a lot of compassion and never going around boasting about being initiates. But there are people who can read us very easily, even if we think they can't. So this assumption that we are an isolated bubble, that we can think and feel about whatever we want, is an illusion. We are all interdependent. Our thoughts and feelings travel. Our energies and mind affect others. And there are ways to discriminate these perceptions. But unfortunately in us, we're very asleep, and so we don't tend to have any understanding. These psychological senses are blunted in most people. But you can learn to refine them through spiritual exercises like transmutation, sacred rites for rejuvenation, mantras, alchemy, meditation especially. I heard Muhammad ibn al-Hussein say that Abu Jafar al-Haddad said, spiritual insight appears as a spontaneous intuition that nothing can challenge. If contradictions arise, it is a simple thought, an event of the ego. Comprehension, we can say, is undeniable. It can't be contested. This is why we use physical evidence. We have to verify what we experience so that we don't get misled. If our inner experiences push us to break against the law of ethics and compassion and sharia, we can say, it means that it is an egotistical experience. It is conditioned and subjective. But inner experiences, hakika, combined with ethical law, superior laws, spiritual conduct gives us faith because we verify the truth of what we are seeing. So if there are contradictions between our perceptions and the teachings, if it violates our ethics or our chastity, especially, then we can say that this experience is subjective. We should dismiss it as a delusion of the mind. Let's elaborate a few more quotes and talk about the nature of certainty and insight. From the field of certainty, the field of insight is born. So as I said previously, 
you cannot understand what you don't see. You have to perceive it first in order to discern and ascertain the meaning of that phenomenon. This is why God the Most High says, when they remember God, they see from Surah 7, verse 201. So self-remembrance is critical. You have to remember the presence of your being, to be conscious, and then to observe so that you can discriminate. This quote continues. Insight is being able to see, and it involves three things. Having insight into God's acceptance, having insight into whatever is required in respect to obediently following the prophet, and having insight into reality. So having insight into God's acceptance is important. We have written to many people who have corresponded with us, who feel very hopeless, who feel lost. Individuals who are very pessimistic and self-deprecating. They believe they can't be saved. They're in a depressed state. They feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of this teaching and they feel incapable or that somehow they're not lovable. This is a skewed and flawed perception, a delusion of the ego. Because all of us have the essence within. And if we have remorse in our heart and want to change, as we explain in the lectures on renunciation and repentance, then we have the possibility to change. We have to realize that divinity is merciful. Not from reading a scripture merely, but from experience. Pretty much every surah in the Quran begins, Bismillah ir-Rahman ir-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. So I know a lot of people are afraid of the Quran. I think it's a very severe scripture. It's very strong. But each surah really begins with recognizing the compassion of divine love. In synthesis, we have to really respect the laws and teachings given by prophets, not by contemporary people who may more or less be interested in spirituality and have beliefs. We have to rely on prophets, initiates and masters who really convey a lot of understanding from experience. So in these Aquarian times, we don't follow anybody. The age of Pisces, which is known by its conservative knowledge, a strict adherence or transmission of knowledge between master and disciple through proving oneself through years of worth and exercises. The age of Pisces is obsolete. We now live in the Aquarian era where knowledge is given openly. However, we have to be devoted and adhere to our inner teacher, our inner master, our inner being. The Aquarian knowledge is finding the master within, not without. And lastly, in relation to this quote, reality is the absolute, Allah, the emptiness, the void of compassion and limitless light, the uncreated light, the abstract, absolute seity. Abdullah Ansari of Harat explains many beautiful teachings in relation to the Quran but also the different degrees of insight and how they apply to different aspects of our spiritual life. I'll read for you these excerpts and I will explain them at length. 
Having insight into God's acceptance lies in finding familiarity. Ashnai, with God, as we read in the Quran. Now proofs have come to you from your Lord, proofs to open your eyes if any man will see. It will be for the good of his own soul. Surah 6, verse 104. So how do we become familiar with God? When we suffer and are depressed, we shouldn't go to our teachers. We should meditate. Gain the answers from your inner being. That will give you life, will give you validation and conviction. By repeatedly exposing ourselves to internal divine states, the virtues of our soul, we have proofs and visions. We perceive in our imagination our virtuous qualities. These often come in the form of inspiring symbols, which contain and unveil intuitive knowledge about how we must proceed in any daily aspect of our life. Whatever we are struggling with, whatever we are having problems with, that's what's going to nourish us the most. The quote continues. Having insight into following the prophet is being firm in following the prophetic tradition. As we read in the Quran that, I do not invite unto God on evidence clear as the seeing with one's eyes. I and whoever follow me. Surah 12, verse 108. Or I do invite unto God, excuse me. On evidence clear as the seeing with one's eyes. I and whoever follow me. We have to respect the prophets and learn from them. It doesn't mean that we blindly follow their words, but comprehend their practical teachings. We have to not render cult to personality, but to the inner self, the inner master, like the being, Saman Vior. Unfortunately, there are many Gnostics who make a very big mess of the prophetic tradition. They render cult to the personality of Saman Vior even though his personality was annihilated at the end of his initiatic work physically, when he achieved resurrection with the body of liberation. If you want to learn more about this principle, you can study the glossary on glorian.org, especially. A lot of people worship his personality like a cult, and they ignore the practical teachings of internalizing inner experience for themselves. It's true that the highest commandment from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 30 to 31, states this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So we have to love the masters, especially. They give a profound sacrifice to teach us things that we cannot access on our own. But it doesn't mean that we worship their personality. So should you love, in synthesis, your neighbor's ego? A lot of Christians interpret this statement, love your neighbor as yourself, in terms of their own selfishness, their own complacency with wrong. To admire and really merely give in to behaviors that are negative, mostly fornication especially. We have to worship the inner self of other people, not their personality and not their ego. When we work and act compassionately for others, it's because we're not reacting towards their own defects, but towards their heart, their essence, speaking to their soul. This is the most dignified aspect of an individual, which we should seek to edify in others by acting consciously.
not feeding the mind. We have to be very firm with ourselves in relation to the prophetic tradition. This is why, to quote Nietzsche from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a very controversial statement, myself I sacrifice to my love and my neighbor as myself. Thus runs the speech of all creators or alchemists, but all creators are hard of willpower, we can say. So it's kind of a play on the biblical teaching. It might seem very sacrilegious, but he's making a good point. I sacrifice my ego to my being and my neighbor's ego to my own divine compassion. This is the speech of the creators, the alchemists, the initiates. But of course, this takes a lot of willpower to restrain our mind and really act for the benefit of others, even if they don't like it. But knowing the line and demarcation of that is really requires insight, intuition. Follow your heart. Let's continue with this quote. Being insightful into reality is seeing your Lord with the eye of your heart. As we read in the Quran that the earth, mountains, and beautiful growth are to be observed and commemorated by every obedient servant who is turning to God. Surah 50, verse 8. Our heart is what perceives the higher worlds, not the intellect. We can often perceive in the astral plane many beautiful, powerful, serene, and divine astral landscapes. Mountains, forests, beautiful scenery that depicts our level of being. Comes to my mind one experience where I was in the astral plane in some kind of small room in the dark. A light turned on and I could see myself in a mirror. And I remember reflecting and recognizing where I was, that I was in the astral dimension and that I needed to go up a staircase. So I went up and I found myself in the middle of a very beautiful mountain town, kind of like somewhere in Colorado almost, where this town itself seemed like it was from the 1500s, like medieval era. Beautiful, simple houses with ornate architecture and structure. Very rustic, scenic, filled with a lot of people dressed like they were humbly going to work, living a rural life. And I remember looking in the distance, seeing the forest and a beautiful and majestic mountain capped with snow. And I felt with all of my heart, the presence of my inner God, and that this is a symbol of ascending out of the basement of my own mind, escaping the darkness of my own cage, and entering into the society of the initiates, being helped, being invited, being called to. So those experiences, we see landscapes and things of that nature, refers to this Quranic statement, the earth, the mountains, and beautiful growth. Divinity shows us these experiences when we're really working in ourselves and to give us inspiration, to help us change. So there are three main categories in Sufi thought in terms of insight. Let's elaborate further. Having insight into God's acceptance springs from contemplation of one's experiences and the signs and proofs of God in creation. So inner experiences have to do with spiritual signs. These are symbols that inspire us 
as proof of divinity's reality in creation, which has to do with the tree of life, not the physical world. So don't interpret it literally. Let's continue. Having insight into following the prophet, uh, the prophet lies in the scripture, the Quran, and the tradition of the prophet and the writings of the pious followers of the prophet. So we can develop great certainty. We have to study proven sources, not texts that we doubt, that we question, and that make us feel at ease or ill at ease. Salman Vera's writings are particularly poignant and deep because he speaks with a great level of clarity and synthesis so that we can interpret any scripture with the key, the alchemical and the Kabbalistic knowledge. We have to really study both the doctrine of Pisces, the different religious scriptures of the world that we received, and also the Aquarian knowledge and the writings of Samal and Vior. The synthesis of the two can give us a lot of certainty about the path. And if we have doubts, we can read both and really come to our own conclusion about what is real, what is objective. Now, it's unfortunate that many Gnostics have harmed students or even potential students by restricting the freedom of their thinking, such as saying that only certain books can be read, and this is wrong. Now, we should really study all the writings that he gave, primarily because they're very pragmatic and practical. They teach us how to experience these things for ourselves. So we should develop certainty from exposing our knowledge to the best possible sources that we can find. So for the purpose of this course, I've been using the Sufi writings of Rumi, Ibn Arabi, Hujwiri, Abdurrah Ansari of Harat, and many other Sufi initiates whom I've studied for a long time and have experiences with of their writings. So we're using good sources to teach these principles in order to show you the synthesis so that you can have certainty. Also, we have to be open to learning from our teachers meaning people who practice this doctrine, and to really learn from those who are ethical and pious, not from people who try to coerce the minds of students with fanaticism by teaching them not to think for themselves. Here we're trying to teach how to think, not what to think. So we invite you to reflect on these for your own spiritual life, whatever may benefit you. Let's finish this quote. Being insightful into reality may be likened to the light illuminating the heart that calls upon you saying, this is it. An echo in the ears singing, I am here. And a clear sign on the path of declaring, I am with you from the stations of the Sufi path. So knowledge of certainty exists when we read and gain conviction at our level. This singing in our ears has to do with clear audience, with hearing the mystical sounds of the superior worlds especially through astral projection. And this constitutes the eye of certainty when we really perceive the presence of our inner being here and now. And then reality is verified through conscious awakenings when we realize that our being does not abandon us. This is acquired through deep visions, prophetic visions, especially. So for those of you who may read the writings of Salman Vior, you can feel that this is it. This is a knowledge that's very profound. And then it gives you inspiration. But we have to go deeper than that. We have to investigate. 
verify what we have read to see whether or not it is true from our experience. And in that way, we open the door to the highest realities. So insight and certainty give us joy. They give us inspiration. They give us optimism, especially, and real happiness. One of the primary characteristics of real certainty is that one has faith. And this is the same meaning as faith. A lot of people mistake faith with belief, with thinking or feeling something is true, but having no evidence. Certainty is when you know for yourself, with facts, with repeatable, verifiable, undeniable facts. Therefore, it gives us happiness. It gives us real joy, inspiration, and hope. I mean, we have encountered some students before, whether online, through correspondences, or even the forum, who are very pessimistic and feel that they're not getting anywhere or that this teaching doesn't provide hope. And I find that particularly strange because when you have direct knowledge and certainty of what these things are teaching, you have great joy, inspiration, hope that you will change and that you are changing. And this is why we make psychological photographs of ourselves, practice work memory as we've taught in our courses on psychology, comparing what we are now to what we were before and having the certainty of knowledge that we have genuinely changed many bad habits for the better. That is a cause for great inspiration. This is insight that gives us life. And sadly, there are people who are very pessimistic and dark. They live in a very sour, morbid atmosphere. And because they're negative, they want to bring others into that state because they suffer. And it's really sad. We need to give them our compassion and our help. A lack of insight really gives us a dead heart, to be dead spiritually. This is why Al-Kushari stated the following in Al-Risala, Principles of Sufism. Concerning the saying of God Most High, or one who is dead, we have brought him to life. Surah 6, verse 122. A Sufi said, someone who was dead of mind, but God Most High brought him to life with the light of insight and set for him the light of divine manifestation and direct vision. He will not be like someone who walks unconscious with the people of unconsciousness. When we have superlative conscious experiences, we gain certainty in the law of cause and effect, karma, and faith that positive action produces happiness for oneself and for others. Even if we become clouded and fall asleep in our discipline because it's difficult to be awake, we still have strength. We are motivated. We may fall asleep again and again, but we keep waking up because we're driven by joy. We practice like those who have never practiced. And we have happiness unlike those who have never known happiness. So we should learn to be more serious and to develop ourselves. But to help those who don't know. So experiences, they come and go. We have spiritual light and spiritual nights. But when we've tasted that divine knowledge, we are inspired and pushed to work. It is said that when insight becomes sound, its possessor progresses to the level of contemplation, mushahida. 
So there are degrees of insight, levels of comprehension. Contemplation or witnessing is the direct experience of the highest truths, which we're gonna explain in future lectures. So to conclude, we'll give you some practices. Every day, develop your self-observation or inner accounting, muhasaba, from moment to moment. Also, extend your mindfulness, the length of time you are aware of yourself. Every day, develop your meditative visualization. You can pick an object like a candle, a work of art or a statue, whatever inspires you. A lot of Sufi initiates will take Arabic calligraphy. Even the Kabbalistic initiates of Israel too will take the Hebrew letters and even visualize them. Imagine them in the screen of your perception when you close your eyes. If you need to take an object and look at it for a time to visualize it as much as you can, you can do so, and then close your eyes and concentrate, visualize, relax. But also, if you lose the visualization, you can open your eyes again to anchor yourself, get yourself stable. Adopt the meditation posture, of course, relax completely your mind, heart, and body, your energies, and then focus 100% of your attention on the visualized object. I recommend that start simple. If you really want to develop the full capacity of your imagination, you have to begin small. Sometimes you might want to pick up a piece of art that may be very complex and complicated, but the truth is you should specifically pick an object that if you want to do something ornate, focus on one aspect of it. If it's difficult, visualize that well, and then move on to other areas. Some people in Buddhism take a mandala or a ornate symbol of Buddhist art, and they imagine aspects of one whole diagram and move along through it, visualizing aspects. The reason why we practice visualization is so that the consciousness has greater strength by which to perceive, greater depth, greater energy. You can also take something like a stone, very simple object, and imagine it. Or if you work on the candle flame, in the beginning, you can focus on the flame, working not to be distracted by your thoughts. And then imagine the candle glowing with life and light in your mind, in your consciousness. This will help you to great, uh, greatly establish yourself in the conscious capacity to awaken in dreams. This is why this is very important. At this point in time, I'd open up the floor to questions. We have a comment. God reveals himself to simplicity and humility and not to those engaged in laborious study and superfluous learning. The Gnostic ought to not rely on his own thoughts, but always seek to confirm them in the light of the divine scripture or the nature of things themselves. Without such confirmation, there can be no true spiritual knowledge, but only wickedness and delusion. And yes, this is very true. As I said Base yourself on facts. Divine mystical experiences have a quality and it's very simple. And they arrive to our heart when we annihilate pride. Kind of similar to what I mentioned in that experience I had when I was meditating with a Gnostic group in which I perceived the awakening of my consciousness and the state of humility by annihilating a certain defect. It was very simple, but very profound and amazing. You can study all the books of Salman Vior. You can engage in discussions and debates. You can know what he wrote 
in a certain chapter in any book, back to front and front to back. But that knowledge of the intellect is superfluous. We can't rely on our own mind. We have to study and develop a strong spiritual intellectual culture, have a knowledge of what symbols mean. But we have to verify what these are about from experience. We use the scriptures because they are signposts for inner knowledge. And they really explain the nature of our own psychology and where we're at spiritually, where we must go and what we must do. So real certainty is developed not by relying on our own desires, but by confirming our spiritual experiences in the light of scripture and objective consciousness. Other than that, we have to really negate that which is useless because our experiences will be negative if they really drive us to wrong action. So we have to be very critical of ourselves, critical of our mind, not in a morbid or self-deprecating way, but with a healthy dose of neutrality. There's a story of Doubting Thomas, who represents this principle of certainty. All the apostles came to him saying, Christ has risen from the dead. And yet he said, I will not believe anything you tell me until I verify it for myself. Unfortunately, people interpret this experience as, or this prophet or apostle as a literal moment in history that there was an apostle who was really skeptical and perhaps negative and not having any faith not believing what the other apostles believed until he finally saw Christ face to face and touched his wound, did he really believe? Now, this is the symbol of certainty and how we develop it. We don't accept and we don't reject anything until we have seen it for ourselves. doesn't refer to a negative criticism, a morbidity, or doubt. It's a quality of consciousness, of discernment. Know the teachings, know the doctrine, but verify it. Keep it in balance. Knowledge and being, when they're combined together in harmony, produce real spiritual understanding. If we have too much knowledge but no experience, we become very sour people, very wicked, where we look at the teachings as some kind of repressive or oppressive thing, not understanding its utility, its practicality. So if you don't want any doubts, Experience it for yourself, but also know the roadmap so that when you investigate the internal worlds, you don't get lost. Because some people travel to another country, metaphorically speaking, the internal worlds, and don't know the language or the locale, and don't know how to get to a certain destination. This is why we study Kabbalah, the scriptures, the teachings, the doctrine, so that we can learn to navigate with efficacy and not be confused. We have a question. What is the difference between fantasizing and visualization? How do you visualize without stepping into the realm of fantasizing? This is an excellent question. Fantasy is negative. It is the projection of the ego. So we've spoken abundantly about the difference between the essence, the consciousness, which is free and unconditioned, to the egotistical self, defects, desires, nafs al-amara, the lower soul, the animal eye, which is a multiplicity of different desires and defects, 
which condition and trap our potential, our essence. Now, we have about 3% free consciousness and 97% conditioned consciousness. So while this is a very disturbing statistic, according to Salman Vior, it depicts our daily state. How often do we go throughout our day identified with memories of the past or being hypnotized by illusions, thinking about events that have not happened or won't happen, fantasizing about our perfect partner, who we're going to meet, about a romantic rendezvous, and all the things we're going to say and how we're going to be admired by our coworkers, etc. All these are delusions of mind. They are projections of the intellect. They are the images of the conditioned psyche. So we're perceiving those images and memories in our mind, but they're not voluntary. They're mechanical. They just happen because our consciousness is passive and our ego, our mind, is active. So fantasy has to do with having a very subjective state of perception in which we're perceiving the contents of our mind. But of course, our mind constantly fluctuates. It changes. It projects its desires within the screen of our imagination. And this is very toxic. It's very negative. Fantasy is the opposite of visualization. Now, visualization is when you are learning to activate the unconditioned, clarified, pure aspect of our consciousness. It's when we're learning to perceive non-physical imagery with intentionality, with voluntary will, without being distracted and without being conditioned by any desire. The only way that you're going to know the difference is through experience, through practice. So you could be sitting to meditate, you adopt a posture, you relax, you can even do a mantra to help calm your mind and transmute energy. And when you're focused enough in yourself, you can imagine a candle, you can visualize it. Now you have the intention and the will to take that one object and to see it in your perception with clarity and vibrancy and color, even with sound or smell, because the consciousness can experience these perceptions even beyond the physical senses. But suddenly you'll find that as you're visualizing this object, your mind will start to change it, will adulterate it, will say, no, I can, I can visualize this better and do something different with it. Or that image begins to change and alter its form in many ways. In most cases, this is our mechanical mind taking our perceptions and contorting it, distorting it. Now, if you find that you can't focus on the visualization, you may find that you need to work more with concentration because you can try to perceive this image in your mind of the candle and it's going all over the place so much that you can't focus. This means that you need to develop more serenity. So focus on an object so that you don't think at all or better said with less intensity and let it calm down let the mind calm down focus on the breath or do a mantra or take a candle and when you see it lit observe it and observe how you are observing simply look at it and if your mind starts to think and label do other things don't repress the mind don't gag it. Don't push it aside. Just simply look and return your attention gently like you're recalling a fact. That's all it is and all you need to do. So fantasy really has to do with how our mind 
mechanically, repetitiously, unconsciously projects images of an egotistical type. And visualization is when you will it with the consciousness. And of course, in the beginning, it's very difficult because 97% of our ego is trapped. Our consciousness is trapped in ego. And visualization is working with the 3% consciousness that's available. But with time and practice, it'll get easier and you'll learn to discriminate more and more. Knowing the complete difference between objective and subjective perception is the quality of an angel. So don't think that you're going to master it right away. It takes a lot of practice. We have a comment. I have a painful theme in my life that I cannot comprehend despite meditation, prayer, asking, begging. I don't receive answers and this is painful as I don't know what the being needs from me. I wanna forget about this problem and remember God as much as I can and be happy and accepting, but this is difficult as these thoughts can be obsessive at times. So this is pretty much everyone's situation. We're in the dark, we suffer, we struggle, we have an issue or problem, an ordeal in life that we don't know how to navigate or resolve. So sometimes we may be engaged in meditation, trying to fix the problem, come up with an answer, begging for an answer, but we don't get it. And of course, every initiate in this path must face this reality. It's a time and a period of darkness in which we have to face ourselves. But the way that we resolve it is by being patient. The answers are there. Our being can communicate with us. But every time we identify with any ego, we obscure our vision. And oftentimes our efforts to meditate and pray and ask and beg become filled with suffering and desire, the desire to change the problem. An essential virtue that we need in this path is patience and tenacity. We have to be patient by enduring the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. When there's a problem that we can't resolve, in accordance with the words of Shanti Deva, why worry about it? If there's no solution, why be upset? But if there is a solution, why be upset as well? Our mind constantly goes after and seeks with the intellect the resolution, which it can never resolve. So the solution is to abandon thought. And of course, it's very difficult to do when we're filled with intense emotions. The solution is to relax and for a time, engage in activities that help you forget the problem. Because if you keep churning and thinking and struggling in the mud, you're going to become exhausted. So if you're in quicksand, the solution is not to move with agitation, but to be still. If our meditations reflect this agitation, if we're approaching it with the intention to get a result, oftentimes that desire obscures the realization, as that quote from Bayezid al-Bastami stated. I'll reiterate his point here. The thing we tell of can never be found by seeking, yet only seekers find it. So if we seek with desire, we will not find the solution. But if we relax 
calm down, relax our heart, relax our mind, relax our body, relax our energies, suspend everything and abandon the world, abandon our thinking, our feeling, our projections of desires and mind. When the mind is still, the answers come. So I suggest primarily the reason why we may not get the insights we want is because we want it out of craving, out of desire. We have to abandon desire and not seek for the answer, but let it come to us. This is a very distinct change or pivotal move in our thinking, in our introspection. So don't obsess over it. Let your thoughts cease, relax. And if you find that meditating is difficult, take breaks. Engage in activities that give you joy, that give you happiness and purpose, that give you certainty. It could be simply playing a game of chess or reading a book, writing poetry, composing music, following our heart. Sometimes distracting us helps us to get more focused. So if you want to get rid of a problem, forget about it. Don't think about it. Approach it when you're not looking for an answer. Very difficult, subtle thing to fulfill in oneself, but it's what leads to the door to certainty. You touched on insight. Is this in any way similar to introspective meditation? And you shared many astral experiences in the astral world. How real is the astral world compared to our world? Do people there have to work, go to school, play sports? Do they have governments and do they look like us on earth? So we talked a lot about introspection, which is the key of understanding ourselves. We do say that our primary practice or one of the most essential practices we fulfill is retrospection meditation. You can study a lecture given at the end of the course on our website called Gnostic Meditation, where we explain how we retrospect our day. We visualize the events that happen, whether chronologically from morning to evening or evening to morning. In order to remember and recall in our imagery, in our imagination, the different events that we experience so that we can understand our own particular psychic aggregates or egos that emerged. So that's what retrospection meditation is. So we were talking a bit about introspecting to ourselves, which is the beginning. So yes, we related some astral experiences. Now the astral world is more real than the physical world. I know a lot of people like to think of the astral plane as something vague and amorphous. They have a lot of assumptions about this dimension, like it's something insubstantial, but they're wrong. Personally, I've had many experiences in the astral plane where I was fully lucid and even given a lot of help by divinity so that I could have more clarity in that state. The astral world is a dimension of matter, energy, and consciousness, but at a different level of nature. It's more subtle, but it doesn't mean that it's immaterial. But because we're unconscious and asleep, we're constantly projecting and fantasizing all day in our physical body. When we physically go to sleep, we take our dreams with us into the astral world, where our mind projects its imagery onto the screen of the astral dimension so that we perceive in our negative imagination perhaps some incoherent, ambiguous, fractured dreams, which may be just a repetition of our daily states. 
Now, in the astral plane, because people are unconscious, if you really observe them objectively, you see that people do the same thing there that they do physically. Because they're asleep, they don't recognize that either they're in, unconscious in the astral world or they're dead. This is why in Greek mythology, Thanatos and Hypnos, death and sleep, were brothers. You want to know what ha will happen to you when you die? If you want to have certainty about what will happen when you die, look at your nightlife. And I don't mean going to the club and partying. I mean, when you physically go to sleep, where do you go as a consciousness? Do, you, do eight hours pass and nothing happens? And you wake up or do you have some vague scattered recollections of doing something or being chased by a monster or whatnot? That's a barometer of how conscious we are. And because we don't discriminate what we perceive, we don't have certainty of life after death. And this is why people are, or who, who approach astral projection and dream yoga tend to do it with a lot of theories and suppositions, not with certainty, but it's objectivity, it's reality. So if you're objective and conscious in the astral world, if you really awaken your imaginative knowledge, you can start to perceive that reality with a receptive mind and an active consciousness so that you don't dream or project your mind into that world, but you really perceive people going about their work, going to school, playing sports, going to their government jobs. And when people recollect dreams of going to work, it's because they actually probably were going to work in the astral plane, but they were just so asleep and mechanical that they didn't know that they were out of their body. The solution is develop mindfulness, awareness of yourself, moment to moment in a continuous and consistent manner. So that way you can wake up in the astral world. If you wake up in the physical dimension and stop daydreaming, stop fantasizing, and start to be receptive and alert and awake and aware, remember your being and your while you're in your body, you're going to remember your consciousness when you're out of your body. So yeah, people look the same, you know, when they're in the astral plane. I've seen family members of mine, they look exactly the same. I've seen dead relatives who didn't know they were dead. And they looked exactly like they did it physically. You know, people appear in accordance with their in relativity to their physical life with some exceptions. Any other questions? I thank you for listening. Appreciate the questions. And in the next lecture, we're going to build off this topic in order to talk more about these three stages of knowledge we mentioned in brief, imagination, inspiration, and intuition in accordance with the Sufi wisdom and the Gnostic teachings. I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagonosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. 
May all beings be in peace.